I should open this sermon with a bit of a confession. I'm not much of a sports fan. Uh, I claim to be. I, I try to be sometimes a little bit. Uh, but I, I, I say that I support an AFL team, for instance. But to be honest, the number of games I've actually watched and the number of facts I could recite about the team are pretty abysmal. Uh, and I say that because I'm about to say something, which is that um, today in this uh in our series walking through the big picture of the bible we get to something of a game changer moment and even i with my meager understanding of sports know that you get these moments in games games of football games of any sport where the right player comes out onto the field and they do that kick that right goal or something that 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 signifies that this is turned around that this is the moment of change this is the game changer Today's our 10th our week in our series, The Peaks. And today we come to the game changer moment. It's not the moment when the game ends, the victory hasn't arrived yet, but the turning point is here. As we approach the incarnation of Jesus, it's so vital that we see it for the earth-shattering moment that it is. You might remember way back at the start of this series, week one, we said that the great story, God's big story, moves through four major movements, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. The first two movements of the story were fairly clear, right? God created the world and it was good. He created humanity to be his image bearers in understanding ourselves in a relationship of sonship with God and a relationship of servant kingship with the creation. So you had the creation movement, right? And then you had the fall. Adam and Eve turned from God, failed to trust that his words are true and good, and so chose to define good and evil by their own standards. And so they, with all subsequent humanity following them, were cast out of the Garden of Eden and the world came under the curse of death and fall. If you'd like, if you'd like to hear more about those, you can always go back and listen to the part two and three of this, this series on the website. Uh, but, but when we, sorry, but then we might ask, well, where has that left us? For the last seven weeks. That's the bulk of this series, right? As we've looked at Abraham, at Israel, at David, at the exile, and at the prophets, are these iconic moments throughout the Bible, um, what are they? How, how do they fit into the arc of the story? On, on the one hand, we've had persistent sin, the persistent storyline that humanity are not right with God, and so the fall has dominated, yet at the same time, the promises of God, and not just promises, but his actions in calling a family, a nation, a king, have also persisted, shining through the darkness. So what is it? Is it fall or is it redemption? And the answer is that uh, in that whole period, what we saw were promises and foreshadows of the coming redemption being played out in the reality of the fall. But today we come to the first of two weeks spent on the beginning, or really on, on the movement of redemption, which comes to a climax next week as we look to the cross and the empty tomb of Jesus. Yet we shouldn't let that minimize what we're looking at this week. Today we're talking about the incarnation which we'll define in a second, but the incarnation provides the final context of redemption, the work of Jesus in redeeming his people. And ultimately, the whole creation doesn't begin when he goes to the cross. No, the, the redeeming work of Jesus, the saving movement of our story, begins when the incarnation begins. Because there is no ascension in resurrection life without first a descension to human life. The author and theologian C.S. Lewis, famous for a lot of things, maybe foremost the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, he described the incarnation as the central chapter of human history, sorry, the central chapter of history and as the grand miracle. He said this, he said, Christian story is precisely the story of one grand miracle. The Christian assertion being that what is beyond all space and time, which is uncreated, eternal, came into nature, into human nature, descended into his own universe and rose again, bringing nature up with him. 
the incarnation is the game changer. It is light coming in where darkness has seemed to dominate. It is life flowing out where only death has ruled. It is hope in the face of black despair. So what is this all-important incarnation? You know, what are we talking about here? Maybe maybe uh, it would be worth saying here that, that in December, if you want to hear more about the incarnation, we're going to do a whole series called, called Dwell, the Word Became One of Us. And we're going to be looking at the incarnation. We're going to be looking at the, the opening of John's Gospel, um, which gives a very unique view into what happens at the incarnation. But today, uh, it, Matthew 1, which we had read for us before, taken on its own, points us, uh, paint, sorry, paints us a picture of what the incarnation is and what it means. The, the angel comes to Joseph and he tells him not to be afraid and take Mary as his wife because the child is her, in her is from the Holy Spirit. You know, this is probably the moment at which Joseph needed to take a seat, right? And take, take a few deep breaths, have a glass of water. But the, the best was yet to come. We get two key facts in this story of the angel's visit which tell us the core facts about the event, about the incarnation. First, he says that the baby is to be named Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And second, we're told that this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the core, the essentials of the incarnation, God with us to save us. God came down as a man in the normal human way, born from a woman, Mary. He lived the life of a man. The Bible tells us he was tempted in every way that we are. He grew like we grow. He was obedient to his parents. He slept, he got tired, he cried, he laughed. He was genuinely human and yet also genuinely God. John's Gospel tells us he was with the Father at the beginning. Everything that was made was made through him, meaning that he is the all-creating God. Yes, this is crazy. If, if you hear any of this and you think, yep, good, the incarnation, baby Jesus, significant moment, let's move on now. Catch yourself, Christians. You are looking with blase eyes on a reality which is unfathomably wondrous. Now, all that we've seen so far, we can, we can take just from the gospel accounts of the incarnation, and, and they should take our breath away, even on those grounds. But when we see it in context of the great story which it is a part of, it's like moving from black and white to colour for the first time. The incarnation is un fathomably wondrous but it doesn't happen you know it's not just out of the blue it's not in a vacuum here the incarnation comes as the climax of all history that came before it and it becomes the key moment that all history after it looks back to everything that we have looked at in this series so far everything looks forward to the incarnation in, in fact all of history was designed to look forward to it let, let me explain what i mean by, by bringing in a few of the key themes we've talked about throughout this series. First, have you seen again and again this fact? God intends to dwell with his people. This is how the, the story starts, right? God creates. He creates the world. Then he creates a perfect garden paradise. And then he creates humanity and he puts us there. And, and there he dwells with us. Yeah, that's, that's the design of this world originally, is that we dwell with God. And that, that becomes the grounds for us uh, revealing his glory to the world, for, for us multiplying the image of God in the world. It's not just there. This was, this was at the center of the calling of Israel. God said to them in Exodus 29, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. And so much of the law of Israel is centered around making a limited way in which this could happen. The tabernacle, literally, that word means the dwelling place. It was God coming and pitching a tent with his people. The 
temple after it had the same function. In a limited way, through a sacrificial system, they allowed the people and God to dwell together, simultaneously separated by layers and by ceremonies, and yet in proximity and some sort of relationship. The prophets, especially Ezekiel and Zechariah, who we have not had a chance to stop with in this series, but as also Isaiah, who is quoted in this part of Matthew, they labor this hope that God will come and will dwell with his people. And yet we know, you know, even as I describe all of these th- things, these moments of God seeking to dwell with his people, you know, don't you, that there has been a separation. The fall has persisted and the reason for that is the persistent sin of God's people. Adam and Eve are cast out of the garden and the presence of God because of their sin. The generation that wanders in the wilderness with the tabernacle is is never able to enter the promised land because of their sin. Israel is exiled from the land because of their sin. The temple is destroyed, never to be rebuilt to the same level of glory because of the sin of God's people. Yet these shadows which on their own fail on account of their sin, are redeemed when we reach the incarnation of Jesus because he is God with us to save us from our sin. The presence of God comes down and dwells with his people. Left, right, and center in the New Testament, we see the incarnate Jesus as the fulfillment of what was promised and foreshadowed in the Old Testament. David was the king after God's own heart, who received the promise that his descendant would sit on an eternal throne. Yet David sinned, and every king in the line of David in the Old Testament sinned. But Jesus is the eternal king. He is God with us, and he will reign forever. Abraham was promised that through his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. Yet Abraham, Abraham's descendants have tended more to be tainted by the world than to bring God's blessing to the world and to the families of the earth. But now Jesus, the great seed of Abraham, comes and he will deliver from Satan, sin and death a people from every tribe and tongue and nation. Adam, Adam was created with an identity of sonship, with God, and yet he led the world into sin. But now the new man comes, the better Adam, the very eternal son of God, and he comes down to lead his people out of their sin. The temple. The temple was a place for God's people to meet with him. And yet when Jesus came, God came to be with us. He makes the bold claim that he is now the temple of God over in John chapter 2. And we could go on and say how Jesus is the better Israel, the better Moses, the better judge, the better Joseph, the true son, the true bread from heaven, the true vine, the true Passover, all of which and more are Old Testament moments and images which the New Testament sees fulfilled in the coming of Jesus as God with us to save us. Do you see the rich significance of the incarnation? God with us is everything. God with us to save us is the context of the consummation of all of God's promises. Let me say that again. God with us to save us is the context of the consummation of all of God's promises. Now, you might hear me say that and you might think, that's not right. When Jesus came as a baby, that didn't fulfill all of the promises of God right then. What about forgiveness? What about holiness? What about God's people living in God's place under God's blessing and rule? The cross and the empty tomb are the fulfillment of God's promises, surely. And even then we wait until the end for some of the, you know, when Jesus comes back, we wait for then for some of the achievements of the cross and the resurrection to be fulfilled. How can you say that the incarnation is the context of the fulfillment of all of God's promises? And the answer is that the incarnation might be more than you realize. When we talk about God with us to save us, when we talk about the incarnation of God as man, we're not just talking about the birth. We've tended to misunderstand this in two big ways, historically. The first misunderstanding is when we think that the incarnation means baby Jesus being born. Think of it it like the difference between a wedding and a marriage. 
you know, the wedding is when it all starts and it's remarkable on its own because it is the coming into being of something beautiful that wasn't there before. A man and a woman are coming together and becoming one. When Jesus was born, really when he was conceived, the incarnation happened, God and man as one. And that is remarkable, but that was just the beginning. Really, the incarnation didn't happen, it, it, it began like the wedding begins the marriage. But the marriage goes on. The incarnation is an ongoing reality through the life of Jesus, that he was God with us to save us. He is God with us to save us. God the Son remained a man. And that's kind of remarkable in a similar way to how it's remarkable and, and, and much more profound to go to a 50th wedding anniversary celebration than a first. He persisted. And actually, here's that second misunderstanding, and this is probably the bigger one. We often mistakenly believe that the incarnation has finished. That Jesus came, God came down as a man, lived for 33 years as a man, but that right now he's just, he's just God again. But the Bible says nothing of the sort. In fact, it speaks very explicitly to the contrary. The Bible goes to great lengths to demonstrate that when Jesus rose, he did so with a physical body. We see him eating fish. We see his followers touching him, seeing the wounds, poking him in the side, right? In, in fact, the New Testament claims boldly that over 500 people were witness to the physical resurrection of Jesus in his human body. And then he ascended to heaven as he was, God and man. He didn't pass through a man filter on the way up, which demanded him. You know, he got maybe five kilometers up and there was this kind of fax machine sound, right? And the manness went away. No! As Stephen, we, we see a demonstration of this, you know, just to pick one out of the hat, as Stephen was being stoned to death in Acts 7, he looked up and what did he say? He said, I see the Son of Man, the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God, Jesus, the God-man, reigning from heaven. Indeed, when he ascended, the angels even said that he would return as he had gone. He's coming back as the man, God with us. The marriage of God and man in Jesus persists and will continue to persist as a demonstration that his work was effective, that he truly does redeem humanity and has demonstrated it by carrying his humanity into heaven to the right hand of God. Isn't the incarnation huge? Isn't it central to history? Isn't it so much more than sinful humanity could ever have hoped for? That's kind of where I want to land this thing today, on, on that note of hope. Because the incarnation isn't just this massively significant moment in history, kind of the cosmic World War II or the cosmic fall of the Roman Empire. You know, things that were historically significant, but which aren't all that important for us today. We said earlier that we shouldn't ever be blasé about the Incarnation because it's unfathomably wondrous. But it's not the same as the wonder of, of looking at, you know, at a supernova, a star exploding, or, or the wonder of witnessing the eruption of a volcano. You know, those things do bring wonder to us, don't they? But, but impersonally so. The Incarnation is unfathomably wondrous in a way that is intimately, personally relevant to you to me the incarnation is rest and peace for the weary soul maybe maybe you've come in today and, and i've been talking about the centrality of the incarnation and how it fulfills history and the sheer magnitude of, of it and you're like that's, that's great john but i'm i'm tired i'm stressed i'm feeling broken by the world or broken by my own brokenness and what I need is not a lesson in the great moment of history what you need is the good news of God with us every one of us faces moments of despair and struggle and the truth of God in the flesh which as we will look at more fully next week culminates at the cross and the empty tomb that news is what we need reverberating in our hearts and in our minds on the days when we struggle, when we cry, when we're overwhelmed, 
So I'm, I'm going to finish today with three ways that the Incarnation speaks comfort and peace to the weary and worn today. First, God with us to save us assures us of God's heart toward all who trust in Jesus, that he loves you. Consider this. God had faced millennia of sheer outright opposition from humanity. The best of the best of the best of us had turned and had sinned. God could have come down to judge and to destroy us, and he would have been right to do so, but he didn't. The creator of all, king of all, lowered himself to the status of one of his creations. The infinite became a man. The owner of the universe was born into poverty, into a poor family. The one who dwells in heaven lived homelessly for years. The God who is perfectly good faced every temptation we are faced with. The all-powerful God submitted himself to persecution and to death. This is the incarnation, and he did it in love. I had this pointed out to me quite recently. It's a line that I'm sure I've read heaps of times before, but isn't it good? Revelation 1, John calls Jesus the one who loves us and has freed us by his blood. Romans 8, 32 says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also give him, with him graciously give us all things? The incarnation assures us beyond a shadow of doubt. If you trust in Jesus, then God is for you. The Almighty loves you. He cares for you to the point of bearing the greatest cost for you. Second, and clearly connected to the first, God with us to save us shows us that God, in the face of thousands of years of persistent sin, persistent opposition, persistent hatred from humanity as a whole, is not content to leave his people to be destroyed, even if it be our own fault. He will do what is needed to deliver us from our sin, and that's just as true of you personally as it is of the whole of God's people. If he will even come down as a man, then we can trust that he will go to any lengths to save us. And next week we'll look specifically at the lengths that he goes to. Third, and of course there is more that could have been said, but third, finally for now, the incarnation, God with us to save us, assures us of eternity. To the struggler who can't see a light at the end of the tunnel, to the one who feels like the waves of this life never end, the incarnation means there is light, there is hope, and it cannot be shaken. Because the God-man has gone into heaven. And so human is now in the heavenly presence of God. We can be sure that we too will be with him. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You know, they were like us. They were facing some big things. You know, Jesus was going to die the next day, really. But, but you know, like us, they got troubled. They got worried. They struggled to see a way through. Jesus told them, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. For those who trust in Jesus, we have this certain hope. Jesus has led the way, and he is the way. And when all is said and done, I'll go to be with him. Would you pray with me? Jesus, your incarnation, your coming as a man, your coming as man, as, as God with us to save us, 
should rightly take our breaths away. We stand amazed at the grace of our God. We ask that you would open our hearts to the truth of it again. Lead us to knowing it at a deeper level that you came down. You descended for us so that you might take us up with you in resurrection life. I pray for the weary, for those who are struggling here today. For the mourner who's listening to this. I pray that you would give them the hope of the God who loves them enough to come down as a man for them, indeed even to die for them. I pray that you give them the comfort of your gospel and the joy of eternity and the peace that passes understanding in Christ Jesus. Amen. Morning. Uh, we're going to be reading 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9 12. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of the darkness into his marvellous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You had not received mercy but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against soul. Keep your behaviour excellent among the Gentiles so that evildoers they may in their thing that which they slander you as evildoers they may because of your good deeds as they observe them glorify God in the day of visitation Embarrass Archie in front of in front of the, the whole congregation today, um, but I just wanted to extol one quality that I love about my nephew, um, which is that he claps because he rejoices when he sings, and I, I I love it, Arch. Let me just I'm just putting that out, you know, just just in case you ever wondered, oh, what does John think about clapping in church? Look to Archie Cook to find my answer. Um, right, let me pray for us. And we're going to dive into this. Um, yeah. Lord, uh, thank you for your word given to us for our growth, for us to see Jesus and to grow more to be your people, uh, for us to know the gospel and live in it. And we pray, Lord, that that's what will happen today, that you would grow us today as we look at your word uh, to be a people who are genuinely and ever more so your church, the people called out by you to be your precious people. Grow us into the identity you would have us live in uh, as, the, as the presence of the declaration of your gospel in this world, the body of Christ. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, we are in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you hadn't guessed that from Archie's reading there. If you uh, haven't already, feel free to flip open a Bible to that. If you don't have one with you, there is a stack of them on this drum over here that operates as a Bible table. And if they run out, there's another stack of them on that shelf over there, which is slightly less accessible, which is why we use the drum. Uh, before we dig into that specific passage, I just wanted to chuck in what I'm going to call the footnotes to last week. Um, last week, uh, Phil Cook 
led us in looking at the glorious beauty of what happened at Pentecost. Uh, and what we got really was a look, uh, for me, this is what I took away, was a look at why we should grapple with God, pray to God to fill us with his spirit so that the gospel would go out and many would be saved. Uh, in fact, this whole last week I've been praying that with Owen in his devotional time um, because of that sermon. Uh, I wanted to add just a couple of notes of nuance to that uh, message uh, that, that uh, I think will be helpful for us as we step into today's. Um, first, I want to give us a definition of what it means for God to pour out the Spirit biblically. Uh, and second, I want to bring it into the series as a whole. Um, now, there's, there's a certain unfairness to chucking someone a sermon in the middle of a Bible overview series and just going, well, you know, figure it out. Uh, so don't take this as in any way a kind of a Phil Cook got it wrong statement. Um, so firstly, uh, there's, there's two ways in which the Bible talks about the Spirit being poured out uh, on God's people. Uh, the first one, it happens in the New Testament and it happens in the Old Testament. Uh, and, and the most common language there is being filled with the Spirit. Uh, we see it quite a bit. Uh, in the Old Testament, uh, Spirit filling happened uh, not as much. It happened on a handful of occasions um, to set to a really select group of God's people. Uh, for example, you know, it happened to, to David. Um, another one, probably, probably the most obvious one, actually, is a guy we've never heard of anywhere else in the Bible or elsewhere. Uh, his name's Bezalel. I'm not even sure if I say it right because he's so, so minimally known, but he's a craftsman. Uh, and in Exodus 31, God says, I'm going to, I'm going to, fill Bezalel with my spirit for the task of building the temple, uh, the tabernacle, rather. Uh, so in the New Testament, the special occasions happen a lot more, if you, if you compare it. Uh, in Acts, we get six times that it explicitly says that someone or some people were filled with the spirit, some of them involving whole churches, whole large groups of people being filled with spirit uh, you know it's, it's interesting you compare that to say the thousands of years of the old testament where a handful of individuals were filled with the spirit and it and it, it, it really states that something's changed here doesn't it uh, and what what's happening when the spirit fills a person you know it happens in a whole diverse bunch of ways not everyone who gets filled with the spirit for instance builds a tabernacle um, that's that that would be interesting um, the spirit Especially uh, empowers a person for a specific ministry for the glory of God, or for a specific task. Maybe ministry is a loaded word that we that we feel these days. But the special empowering of the Spirit to a Christ-exalting task, a task that is for the growth of God's kingdom and for the encouragement of God's people. Uh, then, second, the there is a, the sense of the pouring out of the Spirit, which is exclusively New Testamental. This is the, the indwelling of the Spirit, which was anticipated in the old, but only comes about in the new. Every believer, all of the time, every believer in Jesus who has put their faith, who rests in faith in Jesus, all of the time has the presence of God dwelling inside of us by His Spirit. The Bible is extremely clear. 1 Corinthians 3.16, to pick one out of many here, says, do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in you? Speaking to this whole church, not a particularly spectacular church either at the time. The spirit is guiding, he's empowering, he's convicting, he's revealing the meaning of scripture. Uh, and, and, and in all of this and more, as we said, his purpose is to glorify Christ to and in us. Uh, the Spirit, all the time in every believer, and that drastic increase in the filling of the Spirit that we see in the, at the beginning from the New Testament onwards, is, is equal to a big moment of fulfillment. So, so where does this fit in our big picture of what we've seen so far? God has sought, does this sound familiar, to dwell with His people. Think about it. We'll, we'll walk the road again, okay? So you start off with Eden and God seeks to dwell with his people in Eden and then they sin and they fall and God calls 
Israel, uh, and, and, and what does he do in the wilderness? He, builds, he has them build a tabernacle. What we saw was a large part of Exodus is devoted to the design and the building of the tabernacle. And why is that? It's because the tabernacle is where God would dwell with his people in a limited way, separated by their sin, but united with them in the tabernacle. And then the temple after that follows the same purpose. These are just kind of the highlights, the peaks, if you will, uh, of, the, of the process. Uh, and, and, then, and then, of course, we got to just a few weeks ago, we looked at the incarnation of Jesus and, and j- that Jesus is God with us. God come to dwell amongst his people. And yet even in the incarnation, there is the division of us, our sin from Jesus in the sense that you see the disciples following him, but they don't really get him. Um, they're not really empowered to see what he's on about a lot of the time you see him so often not understanding where Jesus is coming from on things that we look back on and we go but but surely um, and then and then you get to the pouring out of the spirit and this is why I say this is a big moment of fulfillment because the pouring out of the spirit is God in us the dwelling place of God is in man in men and women it's a remarkable thing and today, today we're talking about the church in the time between the first and the second comings of Jesus. Uh, and it's appropriate that we start talking about the, the indwelling, the empowering, the filling power of the Holy Spirit, because this is perhaps the great difference between the New Testament and Old Testament communities in the Bible. On the basis of the work of Jesus, defeating our sin and bringing us back to God, the indwelling presence of God is with us, all of us, individually and as a group. And so we come to today, uh, and I mean that literally, because today we're looking at the church, and that's us, church. Um, And what does it mean to be us, to be the people of God? And where do we fit into the great picture of God's plan? Um, This is a big subject. In many ways, the question we're asking here is, what does all of the New Testament after the Gospels say? You know, Acts, the New Testament letters, even Revelation, which is a New Testament letter, because it's addressed by John to churches, uh, (laughs) all of these center on this question of what does it mean? What does it look like? How do we live as the people of God today? And to get there, uh, we're, we're going to follow the pattern of just this one little tiny passage um, from, from 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 to 12. Uh, but drawing on that broader te- teaching of the whole New Testament at the same time. So first, th- three weeks ago, um, we, we looked at uh, the servant songs of Isaiah. Uh, if you were here with us for that, you, you might remember it. If you weren't with us or you don't remember it, feel free to go back and have a listen to that. Um, but... but um, those were, we saw, a bit of a baffling mix because they talk about both a corporate body as the servant of the Lord. There's this mysterious ca- character, this saviour coming, who is the servant of the Lord. And the servant of the Lord is spoken of as corporate Israel and it's spoke, he's spoken of as, a, as an individual as well. And, and what we saw was that, what that leads to, what that anticipates, as the New Testament makes explicit, is that Jesus is true Israel. Jesus is the righteous remnant of one. Once again, if you want to dig deep there, feel free to go back and listen. Uh, and, and all who trust in him, all who are the people of Jesus by faith, are truly Israel. They are truly God's people. This is true of the Old Testament saints who trusted in Jesus by trusting in the promises that find their yes and amen in Jesus, as the Bible says. It's true of the New Testament saints who trust in Jesus, the fulfillment of all that was promised. But now, Peter writes this letter. It's a beautiful letter. If you want to go deep on Peter, we did a preaching series on it in our early days. It's still on the website. Um, Peter writes this letter, and he writes it to, uh, almost all scholars agree, a majority Gentile church. Uh, It's actually fairly clear that it's a Gentile church because he says things like talking about their former ignorance, in, verse, in chapter 1, or, or talking about the futile ways inherited from their forefathers, which would be funny things for Paul to say, wouldn't it, about, about Jewish 
Christians, wouldn't it? But, but and in ver- chapter 4, he, he contrasts their old ways with their new ways, and he calls their old ways the ways of the Gentiles. He says to these majority Gentile Christians, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a, a people, sorry, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a bit crazy what happens here. Peter is quoting directly uh, from the Old Testament. Um, We actually looked at the verses that he's quoting from uh, early in the series. He's quoting from Exodus chapter 19, verse 4 to 6. He's quoting from the covenant of God with Israel at Sinai. The Mosaic Covenant. And you might remember it, it was a conditional covenant that he made with, with Israel. Uh, let's go back there. It says in Exodus chapter 19, If you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the peoples. Do you see the conditional? If you shall, then you will be. For all the earth is mine, he says. And, and what comes next? Do you remember what comes next? And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And Peter Peter picks up the promised language of Sinai and he applies it to God's people. Do you see, do you see the connection that Peter's making here? Jesus, the true Israel, fulfills the Mosaic covenant. All of its intentions, all of its promises, all of its desires fulfilled in Jesus. He is, he is the true Israel and all who are in him become the people of God's promises and 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 what's happening here is part a small part of a larger principle that happens across the whole new testament which is that we live in a now but not yet time of the promises of god god's promises fulfilled in christ in us now that's what's happening and yet they await their final consummation their final fulfillment when jesus returns so many of the promises that we find, in fact, all of the promises you could, could actually argue, that we find uh, in the Old Testament become fulfilled in a now but not yet way in the new, in the church. And they're completed when Jesus returns. You know, we, we looked at this a little bit back in our, in our exile and return sermon. We're, we're at that stage in the series where we're going, hey, look back there, look back there, look back there. Good. The prophets... Uh, foresaw a promise, brought the promises of God rather in so many areas. And we, you know, a few examples that we've looked at are where they, they promise renewal of God's people and a new heart for God's people. And the New Testament gives us this bold declaration that in Christ you are a new creation. And so we see a fulfillment there, yet our new nature is still bound to this old flesh, this old body and there's this old sinful nature which though uh which though damaged and 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 not the powerful entity that it was still lingers and we await the day of full completion you see and now but not yet promise there was the promise of of a new covenant and jesus as we read at communion today he says this cup is a new covenant in my blood and so we've walked into the new covenant with god and yet we await the fulfillment of the covenant promises in their full form when Jesus comes back. There was the promise of a holy, a sinless people of God. And, and for us, we see that in a now way because we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ. And so our, we are declared righteous by God. Our sins are no more. And we are being transformed out of sinful behaviors. And yet we await the day, don't we? Don't we long for the day when Jesus comes back and as John says, we'll, we, when we see him, we'll be like him because we'll see him as he is. We'll fully comprehend our Savior and we will be sinless like him. Of course, you know, there's, as we've looked a little bit at, the, the promise of a dwelling place. That God would dwell with his people. And now, as we've seen, God's spirit dwells in us. And yet we, we wait for the day. You know, that we look forward to, that we see taught about in, in Revelation 21 when 
when the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. He will be their God. And there's none, none of the separation, none of the veil, none of the, none of the stuff that right now makes it hard for us to live in that relationship with God. Church, we've got to understand who we are. We need to understand ourselves as greatly privileged to live in the times that we live in. The age between the first and the second coming of Jesus is an age of, of experiencing the blessings of God in Christ. Although we still suffer, although we still struggle, we experience them in this now but not yet way. And, now, and, and on top of that, we have a clear view ahead like never before that Jesus is coming back to usher in uh, his consummate promises, the, the completed kingdom of God. We live in the now but not yet, and that is a beautiful thing. I wonder if, like me, you've ever, you've ever looked at, you know, some of the, the big things that happen in the Old Testament. You know, you, you look at the days of Elijah. I sound like I'm quoting a song there. Um, and, and, you know, you think, oh, well, I wish I could have been there when the fire came down on the burned up the sacrifice wouldn't have that been amazing but but church we live in in a greatly privileged day we live in a day where the spirit of god is poured into the people of god and his promises are in the act of fulfillment now that were all longed for by the old testament prophets by jesus we live in such a beautiful time and the question is then how are we to live as the people of the now but not yet, how are we to live? And I want to give you one answer to that today. You can approach that from a few different angles, uh, but I'm going to take one from First Peter uh, that, that then pans out across the New Testament. We understand ourselves to be in a war. Warfare is one of the more common images in the New Testament for the Christian life and for the life of the church. And we need, to, we need to recapture that, church. Um, you know, verse 11 of, of 1 Peter 2 says that the passions of the flesh, now think about that, how might we finish that sentence? The passions of the flesh, yeah, they're not good for you. Mm, they're going to harm you. Yeah, there's better stuff in Jesus. You know, all accurate, all accurate. But what does Peter say? He says, the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Take another example, the image of warfare in Ephesians 6, you know, where, where Paul says, take up the whole armour of God. He pictures every Christian and the people of God together as soldiers in a fight. Revelation 12 pictures the church at war with Satan in this world. And so often, so often Christians, we tend to fall for the lie. That this is like, and we'd, we'd never say it like this, don't get me wrong, don't go, oh, yeah, well, I've never said it like that. But think about how you treat your life and your church and your ministry. So often we treat it like this is a bit of a dull social club that we've become a part of. Yay. Or maybe, maybe an add-on to my life. You know, Jesus is this thing that, that, that I, you know, I, I fit him in edgeways sometimes a bit. Um, But this is the reality that we step into every single day. I am a soldier in the greatest war that has ever been. I am a soldier of God in the war of the world. And as a soldier in the now but not yet time, I am a soldier on the winning side. Christ has already won the victory. This might sound familiar because we looked at this two weeks ago. Colossians 2.15. He, that is God, disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him that is Christ Jesus has won and yet the war which is ultimately decided in Christ rages on still in the here and now with significant consequences to what happens now and we still have a part to play church and Jesus is inviting us into that to living as his people in the war for this world. So I want to 
I want to take us today and, and I want to point us towards two wrong ways that we tend to fight the war of being the church and, and two right ways that we sh- must fight the war whilst we be the church. So number one, wrong. We put all our energy into the wrong fight. This is, this is sadly common. So many spend all of their time fighting you know, for, for things like for, for the upholding of Christian values in society. That's, that's my mission. I wanna, I'm here to fight for, for Christian values to be upheld. Now, that's not an evil thing. Don't hear me saying that that's the wrong thing and that you should never, ever do that. But that's not how the war of God is going to be won. Do we really think, let me ask you this, and I hope the answer is yes. Do you really think that the gospel is necessary for the transformation of people? If we do, we need to recognize that everything else is band-aids on battle wounds. It's not enough just to call the world to be better. We need to call the world to its savior. This is the way that change happens at every level. Second wrong thing is that we misunderstand who our enemy is. And this this has done huge damage across the years. Let me, let me read you a little bit from Ephesians chapter 6. Paul says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Our enemies, and this cannot be said too many times apparently, our enemies are not the people of this world. Yeah, we make that mistake, don't we? If we, if we think that, that politician who's so anti-Christian, he's my enemy. No, let's put a name on it. You know, Dan Andrews. People love being like, Dan Andrews is an enemy of Christianity. I, like, I don't think he likes us, don't get me wrong. Um, <laughs> but the Bible's perspective is not that Dan Andrews is the enemy we're fighting against. Sorry, Dan, if you happen to be listening to this, pick on you there. You know, or that notorious sinner in your community. Let's bring it a little bit closer to home. That person who, who just seems like, like they hate Jesus and they hate the church and they just, they just don't want to bar of it. And, and, and we so often end up thinking, oh, that person's my enemy. The most heartbreaking way that this pans out and happens terribly regularly is when God's people think that other Christians who we disagree with are our enemies. Now, don't get me wrong here. We are to call out wrong when it is wrong. We are to correct one another in love. But church, we're we're called to love one another as the people of the God who loves us so dearly, even if they bother you, even, even if they believe differently to me, or even if they have massively significant flaws that I look at and I go, gosh, that person just grates me. We are compelled by the gospel not to make enemies of one another, but to love one another. This is just as true locally as it is globally, right? It's just as true of those people sitting in those chairs near to you now as it is of the Christian over in America who you look at and you go, gosh, they just seem to get so many things wrong and, you know, oh, their view of the end times. Oh, but, but, but we must love them. We have no choice because the gospel has been given to us. The gospel is the gospel of peace that reconciles us to one another. Dare we hate each other if God has poured his love on us? Charles Spurgeon, um, he said, if I have once known and recognized any man to be my brother in Christ Jesus, and of course in his time, he means any man or woman to be a brother or sister in Christ Jesus. The love of Christ constrains me no more to think of him as a stranger or a foreigner, but a fellow citizen with the saints. That's, that's all of that quote that I wrote down, but he actually goes on to give an example, and he talks about this guy in his day who, who was a high church uh, uh, churchman who 
who fought for, for high churchism, which if you don't know what high churchism is, it's a bothersome thing. It's, you know, when Anglican churches have statues of Mary and lots of censers and candles and try and distance people through traditions, basically. Um, but he takes this one example of a guy and he says, I hate high churchism as I hate Satan. That's a fair bit. But this guy who's pushing for high churchism, I have a soft and warm place for in my heart because the love of Christ, the gospel of Christ, constrains me to love him. Our enemies, church, are spiritual enemies. And we fight, we fight them with the weapons of God's spirit. Now, if we do otherwise, we're fighting the devil's fight for him, honestly. So how do we fight? Here's our two right ways. One, we fight by trusting Jesus and so proclaiming the gospel. Peter, Peter in our passage, he gives us the purpose for which we are a royal priesthood, a holy nation and a people for his own possession. He says that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvellous light. I hear often Christians who think that the lost need to be saved, they need to be reached, the gospel needs to be proclaimed, but I'm not really the one to do it, you know, like someone else I need to, to you know, if, if, if they all had a fire like that, you know, that person's on fire, they can go and talk to this person about Jesus. You know, I hear often Christians who think that, that they need to be reached, but it's not me. There's these people in my life who, who need Jesus. I know that they need Jesus. John, you should have a chat with them. You're a pastor. You... they need you but no by the way i'm not the best evangelist in the world but no jesus put you into their life and he doesn't make mistakes he put you there to proclaim his excellencies you know revelation 12 we mentioned this before um there's this angel that cries out and says the church has conquered Satan by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. We're called to declare the gospel. By the way, that ends with, for they love not their lives even unto death. We are called to declare the gospel even if it costs us our lives. How much more is it to cost some embarrassment? social difficulties maybe maybe a, the loss of credibility with people maybe even some workplace tension we're not talking about lives there right like like if you if you're talking they loved they proclaimed even at the cost of their lives and that's us church then we are to be a proclaiming people who conquer Satan by the proclamation of the gospel. Now, this takes real trust in Jesus, doesn't it? Trust that Jesus is actually better than the gods of this world. You know, there's loads of hurdles that we go over that we struggle with, but here's one of them. We trust to believe that Jesus is better than the gods of this world. You know, people can seem really content with their, with their car, with their nice house, with their beautiful income, with their delightful group of friends, with their really nice clothes. And, and, and we can look at that and we can fall for the lie, you know, that, that that's, that's enough for them. They're, they're, they're content with that. Do we, do we trust that they truly need him? And that somewhere hiding in there is a felt need of him, even if they don't recognize what that feeling is desiring. Do we trust the story of the Bible, that we were created for a relationship with our Creator and nothing else can satisfy, nothing else can free, nothing else can release me from a guilt that will hold me until I have Him? You know, so, if you're like me, like, we often experience this ourselves. We experience that God is good, that He is better, that He is the only thing that satisfies. And then, and then we tend to doubt that that could be true for other people. It's, it's bizarre when you put it out loud, right? Do we believe that they lack the most fundamental peace and joy that we were made to experience? 
that there is that God-shaped hole created into everyone, which all of the things that people try to stuff in there will never fill. They're just going to be another failed attempt. The clothes, the car, the house, the money, the friends, the family, all of it, nothing is made to fulfill us like God fulfills us. Do we trust that there is power in the gospel of Jesus? This is another one. This is all things that we'd say yes to probably on paper, right? You know, if you would have that on a, on a page and say yes or no. Um, no one's going to tick no, right? I hope. But Paul, Paul says, you know, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Do we trust that there is power to save in the truth about Jesus, regardless of my weaknesses, regardless of how insufficient a witness I am, do we trust that there is power in the word of the gospel? Do we trust that God is powerfully with us? This is a a promise he made. He said, all power in heaven and on earth has been given to me Go therefore and make disciples and surely I am with you to the end of the age. Do you see that? All power is his and he sent us out for this gospel declaring task and he is with us in his power. If we believe these things, we go out and we fight with joy, knowing that the battle is already won. Second right way is that we love Jesus, so we fight for holiness. Peter says, he says, abstain from the passions of the flesh. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Elsewhere, he, he quotes the Old Testament again. He says, be holy for I am holy. Uh, not, not that Peter's holy, he's quoting God's words. He says, God's people are to be holy because God is holy. What does holiness mean? Good question. Worth thinking about. Um, and, and, and you can say, like, like up in the air, in the, in the cerebral levels, holiness is being like God. Holiness is, 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 is God-likeness. And, and therefore, God is the most holy because God is God. Down on the ground, what holiness looks like is it means living a life that is consistent with the gospel that God has given us. Paul wrote, he wrote this, he said, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. How seriously do we take the call to be, to to walk in line with our calling, with our gospel, to walk in holiness? If If we claim to follow Jesus, who is perfect love. And we've experienced that, haven't we, church? If we claim to follow the one who is perfect love, but, but we gossip and we oppose one another and we're, we're cruel to others. Or what if, if, we, if we claim to follow the Saviour who came to save sinners, but we treat some people like they're dirt because, man, look how bad that person is. If we, if we live morally out of line with the truth of the gospel we're we're fighting Satan's fight for him if the spirit you know let me say this if the spirit's convicting you of this now please hear me out here I'm glad he is delighted that's the spirit's work it's a good thing for you and for us that he convicts us of our sin because he leads us to holiness. He leads us through repentance. If, you, if that's you, you know, the answer isn't, let me say, the answer isn't, oh, I've been convicted of this sin. I need to try harder to be holy. Um, the answer is to recognize your sins are dealt with in Jesus. If you've trusted in him, then you are justified. Your sin is dealt with. And that frees you and primarily what, how we experience that is that frees us to repent of our sin. It frees us to bring it open in, out into the open and let it die. Turn away from it. Let me invite you. 
as, as we finish today, as we close, let's, let's practice the freedom of the gospel as a people. Let's practice the freedom of repentance. This is so hard. I know it's hard. I, I, I regularly find out how hard it is and how I struggle against repentance. And it's bizarre because it's such a beautiful thing when it happens. Let's live as a people freed by the gospel to repent. You know, if you, if you want to pray with someone about that after the church, come and have a, after the service, come and have a chat to me. If you want to pray with someone else, go and pray with them. I don't mind. But right now, why don't we, why don't we finish by praying together? Jesus, we, we praise you because you have called us into the, the beautiful reality of the church. This thing that the Bible says is the body of Christ. The fullness of him who fills all in all. Lead us, Lord, to see your glory in the gospel and so to proclaim that beautiful truth to live in accordance with it. And Lord, I want to pray. I want to pray a prayer of repentance for us, for any here who, who need that, Lord, and we, we all at times do regularly. We confess we don't always live in line with the gospel. I want to put that in the light, Lord, and let it die. We want to follow you. Lead us to be a people who, who have a holiness consistent with your grace with what Jesus did for us, consistent with the death of Christ on the cross and his glorious resurrection. Keep us, Lord, from fighting the wrong fight. Let us be focused on the fight that you've put in front of us. Keep us from seeing um, humans as our enemies. Well, we know that we fight a spiritual enemy and we know that in you, he is defeated and he's being crushed. Bring many to salvation through your people. As the gospel is declared, as we go out, bring people into your kingdom, Jesus. We pray it in Jesus' mighty name.